Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Dr. Steven Reisner, psychoanalyst and political activist in New York. He is a founding member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology, advisor on psychology and ethics for physicians for human rights, and past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. He was a leader in the successful movement to prohibit psychologists from their central role in CIA and military abuses of detainees. As a result of these efforts, psychologists were removed from Guantanamo Bay in January 2016. This is his lecture on the dance of the occult and unconscious in Freud, given at Morbin Anatomy Museum in Brooklyn, New York, October 2016. Okay, I, um, I want to give a little context. Um, this paper was uh, crafted for the conference that we that was held in London on psychoanalysis, art, and the occult, and much of the view of Freud and the occult comes to us uh, from Jung. And so there's a little piece of my emphasis to reclaim Freud, Freud's, the, Freud's position from Jung's gossip about Freud. So um, I will get to that, um, <clears throat> and I also want to claim a piece of the review of the history of Freud's interest and other people's interest in the occult. I want to claim a, a, some piece for psychoanalytic theory. I, I, I believe that it's important to move the ball forward in terms of psychoanalytic theory, or if we're going to speak about psychoanalysis, uh, just to keep things fresh, um, also to keep myself interested. Um, I think that the great thing about Freud's theory and Freud's, uh, Freud as a model uh, is that he was always curious, and he was always he saw himself like a conquistador. He saw himself as claiming new territory, using expanding the realm of psychoanalysis. And let me explain what we might, what I mean by psychoanalysis, and why it, I don't see it as a kind of uh, archaic, narrow uh, theory of therapy, but actually as a way of thinking about just about every everything human. Um, Foucault described Freud and Marx as unique in some ways because they created the discourse within which they uh, taught and researched. Um, they, they each actually created a, a, a language, uh, a, a grammar, a, a, a mode of thinking and speaking about the topic that interested them. For Marx, of course, it was economics and politics. For Freud, it was the, the human being in a social context. It was subjectivity itself. You could even say it's the form that discourse could possibly take, the way we think and communicate, and how 
that may be uh, aligned or misaligned with being a human being. Um, so, um, so that the essential piece of what Freud was talking about when he spoke about the discourse of psychoanalysis, when he spoke about what it means to be subjective, a subjective, aware human being that communicates to other human beings, had to do primarily with the different modes of the possibility of, of thinking. Um, one mode being primary process and one mode being secondary process. And I think all of psychoanalysis can uh, can flow from the streams of that particular concept of what it means to have uh, a kind of individual, separate, uh, almost physiological self, the primary process, and transforming that into a, a communicable, thinkable knowledge. And that's the secondary process. And that requires a kind of a transformation, a, a kind of a turning of the mind, if you will. Um, Freud used the soul uh, in German more than the mind. But a turning that allowed things to be thought, and then it also prevented certain things from being thought. And that, I think, the, the, the fact that things are allowed to be thought and prevented from being thought in the communicable discourse uh, leaves us, leads us, I think, into some of the issues that I will get to having to do with occult phenomena and Freud's interest in occult phenomena. Okay, so let me now go back and give a little piece of history uh, which we could call a little bit of gossip about the, uh, the beginnings of, of Freud's relationship to the occult, the reputation of Freud and the occult, Jung's role in this. You know, there are many Freuds. If you are, read popular views of Freud, if you uh, read anybody's view of Freud, including mine, you find that you get a very particular Freud and you, that might be very different from other Freuds. I mean, there's the classic Freud of television and New Yorker cartoons where he sits behind the couch and doesn't say anything. Um, there's Freud who believed that everything was sexuality and that all we were looking for was pleasure. Uh, there's Freud who was the pessimist about the possibilities of civilization and thought that the entire world, by virtue of us living in groups, was neurotic. There are many different Freuds that we could uh, claim. Um, but there's a particular Freud that Jung described, and he was part of the uh, discourse on, on establishing Freud as being sex, 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 and nothing but sex. And uh, he, was, he particularly separated that Freud uh, from his own explorations into uh, phenomena beyond sexuality, uh, including phenomena beyond what we can perceive with our senses. And um, so Jung tells this uh, story, um, which I'll read because, because it's funny. <laughs> because uh, 
and because it, 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 it's so succinct and such a lie. <laughs> I, so this is Freud writing 50 years after the fact. Um, I can still recall vividly how Freud said to me, my dear Jung, promise me never to abandon the sexual theory. That is the most essential thing of all. You see, we must make a dogma of it, an unshakable bulwark. In some astonishment, I asked him, a bulwark against what? To which he replied, against the black tide of mud of occultism. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Jung goes on to say, this is the thing that struck at the heart of our friendship. I knew that I would never be able to accept such an attitude. What Freud seemed to mean by occultism was virtually everything that philosophy and religion, including the rising contemporary science of parapsychology, had learned about the psyche. You know, Jung says this happened, he will never forget it, on a, Sunday, on a day in 1910. So, now why did Jung tell this story? Because he needed to explain what the territory that he was uh, bravely embarking to conquer and to bring to the world, and that Freud was too frightened to do that. Now, he's in good, Jung is in good company. Freud did exactly the same thing to his mentor, and that was Joseph Breuer. Um, Breuer was really to Freud what Freud was to Jung. Um, and Freud was to Breuer what Jung was to Freud. Breuer was this doctor in Vienna, uh, the turn of the last century. He was known to be a brilliant doctor, but he was not academic. He had a circle of young Jewish uh, physicians around him. And uh, he was relentlessly curious, quite brilliant. And he treated a lot of what at the time were called hysterical women. And of course, the most famous hysterical woman of all, Anna O, was a patient of Breuer's. And Breuer, and Freud was like the, you know, the smartest student of them all, and Breuer befriended him and took him home and gave him cognac and they would sit up all night and talk. And uh, Breuer would tell him about Anna O, who was a close friend of Freud's fiance, and there wasn't much uh, confidentiality back then. <laughs> but in any case, Freud was very excited about this story. It opened up a whole world of thinking and theorizing. And he asked Breuer if they could write a book together, which they proceeded to do, in which Breuer wrote the theoretical section, which was is quite extraordinary, full of ideas about the role of sexuality and uh, areas of conflict and trauma and dissociation and all of this stuff. And eventually, Freud uh, broke with Breuer's uh, over, mostly over, supposedly over the sexual theory, but he broke with Freud because Freud was very ambitious and he didn't want anybody to think that anybody had influenced him and given him his ideas. And so he retells the story of Anna O's treatment also about 30 years after the fact in a way that does to Breuer and to Freud what Jung did. He did the exact same thing. So we know the story of Anna O. Supposedly, uh, you know, she created the talking cure. She named the idea. She taught Breuer how to do it. And then she was cured at the end of the case. And 
Freud tells the story, that he told it to Jones, Jones dutifully wrote it in the biography of Freud, that the case was not a success, that the night after the case was resolved, in fact, Breuer was summoned back to Anna O's bedroom. She was in the throes of a hysterical pregnancy, saying, Dr. Breuer's baby is coming. It was, and, and Breuer, according to Freud, on the evening of the day when all her symptoms had been disposed of, Breuer was summoned to the patient again, found her confused and writhing in abdominal cramps. Asked what was wrong with her, she replied, now Dr. B's child is coming. At this moment, he held in his hand the key that would have opened the doors to the mothers, but he let it drop. With all his intellectual gifts, there was nothing Faustian in his nature. Seized by conventional horror, he took flight and abandoned the patient to a colleague. The doors to the mothers comes from Faust. Um, it, it, I mean, it's so much fun. I'll just read you the little piece of Faust, where he says, Mephistopheles says to Faust, take this key. And Faust says, that little thing? <laughs> and Mephistopheles says, take hold of it, don't undervalue it. Faust says, it glows, it shines, it increases in my hand. <laughs> and Mephistopheles says, how much tis worth thou soon shall understand. The key will scent the true place from all others, follow it down, to lead thee to the mother. <laughs> so, you know, for Freud, the key that Breuer let drop was this key of sexuality, the key of transference, the key of the Oedipus complex, the key of all knowledge. And poor conventional Breuer was horrified and ran away. And, and Jones, in the biography, adds a whole new chapter to this in his hagiography of Freud. Jones says, though profoundly shocked, Breuer managed to calm Anna O'Dan by hypnotizing her and then fled the house in a cold sweat. <laughs> the next day, he and his wife left for Venice to spend a second honeymoon, which resulted in the conception of a daughter. The girl born in these curious circumstances was, nearly 60 years later, to commit suicide in New York. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can see that each one is, is like destroying the, the, the influences that might take some credit. Mm. Um, by the way, the whole story of Anna O's hysterical pregnancy is bogus. Mm. There's a full record of Anna O's treatment uh, to be found in the Bellevue uh, Sanatorium in, uh, in the outskirts of Vienna. And there's no record whatsoever of a hysterical pregnancy. And in fact, Breuer's daughter was born three months before the treatment with Anna O ended. And she did commit suicide. But it wasn't in New York. It was in Vienna uh, when the Gestapo came to her door to take her to a concentration. So the story has been twisted in, in a kind of horrendous way by the Freud hagiographers. But OK. And she was a social worker. And, and Anna O actually had this huge career. She became the creator, pretty much, of social work in uh, Austria. And uh, she was never a fan of psychoanalysis, as you can imagine. But she, uh, <laughs> she did have a very successful life, um, helping children, particularly. Um, OK. 
But why do I tell this story? First of all, because it's really a great story. But second of all, because um, Jung, we have to take with a grain of salt the categorization of former mentors and that attempt to like narrow them down, uh, you know, to make room for oneself. And Jung did that uh, with Freud. And as a result, Freud's work on the occult is completely unknown. And uh, it, we have this idea that Freud was frightened by new ideas, which is not my Freud. Um, I just, the idea that Freud was afraid of things that were not open to perception is a denial of everything that psychoanalysis Because psychoanalysis is all about that which is out of our perception. And where, what its origins are, what we do with it, how it affects us. And for Freud, the occult was to be treated a bit like sexuality. Some piece of knowledge that we need to present carefully to a skeptical public. Um, so um, let me talk a little bit about the Freud that, that I've constructed uh, from my reading of his writings. But I, I think that it, it's helpful to expand our view of Freud so we can include what I would call the shamanistic uh, aspects of Freud's curiosity and practice. I mean, let's understand. Freud believed that there were things in experience that were not available to consciousness. He believed that in order to get at those, that material, one had to take a certain kind of a journey. Um, what kind of a journey it changed over his career? He started believing strongly in the, in the uh, effects of cocaine. Um, and uh, he later believed in what we might call going into trance, because uh, he became a hypnotist, and he started out hypnotizing his patients. He, he was really willing to try quite a few things in the interest of what he observed. Like, let's remember that you take the Anna O story, Anna O what, and the hysterical women of the day seemed to not be able to know certain things, but those things had to come out in, uh, in ways that could be, in a sense, disavowed. So symptoms were knowledge that was denied, usually associated with trauma, and it required some kind of a process to bring this information into awareness, some kind of a journey. Um, so Freud's interest, from the beginning, had to do with um, freeing, uh, freeing separated off or deadened or denied or unknown aspects of self-experience. For Freud, freedom, health, had to do with a kind of integration of the most and access to the most self-experience, and I would say self and other experience as possible. And so that is kind of the aim of the psychoanalytic journey. And so we can understand the occult experiments in that context just like we can understand everything else that Freud did in that context. So, you know, you can always find quotes in Freud that support any view of Freud, and the 
anti-occult Freud, you know, the people who see Freud as this narrow anti-occult, <coughs> have found some quotes where he rejected it, which he did do early on. But he wrote to a colleague, I want to remove a misunderstanding. A psychoanalyst refraining from taking part publicly in occult studies <coughs> is a purely practical method and a temporary one, <laughs> not at all an expression on principle. <coughs> Freud, Freud believed that the, the, the world wasn't really ready to accept these studies, but he pursued those studies. Similarly, he warned his, his uh, disciples, if you want to call them disciples, his students, his uh, supervisees, <laughs> um, about the power of sexuality. You know, Ferenczi was known for kissing his patients, and Freud thought that was a terrible idea, especially if it got out. Because these were very powerful forces that he was, that they were playing with. And he thought that they really had to be uh, handled in as uh, objective, scientific, if you will, not even if you will, scientific, and reasonable way, taking into account the effect on the public. Don't give them more than they can handle, and don't uh, give them populist versions of psychoanalysis. You know, Jung wrote a letter to Freud when he was in America. Uh, Americans are really are wildly accepting psychoanalysis. And Freud wrote back, and you think that's a good thing? <laughs> so Freud was very careful about how he wanted psychoanalysis to set Too careful in many people's, uh, in many people's thought. But, the, um, the point I want to make is that when Freud was with Jung during 1910 and 1911, when Jung claims that Freud, you know, set a bulwark against occultism, Freud wrote to Jung and said, you know, I'm not going to touch these studies right now, but I would like you and Ferenczi to pursue it. And then after the break, he encouraged Ferenczi to pursue it. In fact, Freud, Ferenczi, and um, Anna Freud did researches in telepathy, in thought broadcasting. Um, and Freud had, um, and, and they were successful experiments. Freud believed quite completely that thought broadcasting, that alter, alternative modes of communicating uh, internal processes from one person to another was possible. And in fact, he wrote to Jones, the three of us carried out experiments in thought transference. They were remarkably good, particularly those in which I played the medium and analyzed my associations. So Freud, you know, like with cocaine, he experimented on himself. And he believed that he was quite successful. He thought cocaine was very successful, too. Um, and I'm sure for him, it was. Um, I mean, I could give a whole aside about why Jung fled from Freud, not only because of his need to establish a grounding of himself independently, but I think he was a little freaked out by Freud's love for Jung. Um, you know, the famous bookcase episode, I don't know if you've seen the movie of uh, The Dangerous Method, but there's this famous bookcase episode that Jung talks <coughs> about in his memoirs, and there's letters from Freud about it. It actually happened that Jung said that bookcase is going to creep and it creaked, and he said, that bookcase is going to creak again. And it creaked. And, but this was during the weekend that Jung spent with Freud, where Freud said, you are my son. 
you are my heir, and really wanted to sort of take Jung in. And I think Jung kind of fled from the over uh, involvement that Freud, you know, that Freud had for him. Um, Jung mentions in his letters that he also had a bad sexual experience with a previous mentor, uh, a, a priest. Um, so I don't know, but you, I really do get the feeling that Jung fled from Freud in a number of in a number of ways. But okay, so um, now the thing is that Freud was always a scientist. So when he studies these occult phenomena, he's studying them with a scientist's eye. He knows that you can use. Uh, all of all phenomena, including occult phenomena, including extra perception, per, you know, parapsychological phenomena, for knowledge or for defense. I mean, you can think of drugs the same way. People use drugs for esoteric knowledge, and they can use drugs for defense. And addiction is all about using drugs as a defense. Um, so uh, this issue of, of um, <coughs> of whether you're going to use, the, so the, the danger, of course, is to, is to think of a, a communication that is uh, parapsychological, that is esoteric. It must be true. <coughs> Freud actually uh, challenged that. He believed that you had to have the same critical view of the use of, for example, thought transference. It could be used for denial as well as it could be used for knowledge. And I will get to, to that uh, in a little bit. I'll talk about some of Freud's researchers that absolutely convinced him that, uh, that parapsychological phenomena were real based on his study of fortune tellers who made incorrect predictions. I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But um, I, I wanted to, the, the, this idea of whether the occult is used in the service of a defense or a denial, or a, a contextualization of insanity is quite important, especially for those of us who are clinicians who are interested in these phenomena. Um, for example, Jung, when you know, if you look later in this book, Jung talks about his dangerous uh, hallucinatory period where he was faced with the possibility of losing his grip on reality. And he, his esoteric experiences, his images, his archetypes, his uh, uh, visions, uh, frightened him. And he asked whether this was madness or whether this was another type of perception. And the question of how to navigate that became very important for Jung and should be important for us, and I think it was important for Freud, um, because the we have to be very wary of romanticizing uh, psychosis as if it is a conduit to occult phenomena. And being a clinician, I see that happen a lot, that, um, you know, that it gives a mode of explaining uh, certain kinds of delusions or hallucinations. And being able to tell the, I had a patient uh, who um, came from a, a, a a small town in Puerto Rico, a small village in Puerto Rico. Um, and 
this was like something out of 100 Years of Solitude. He would describe how he would wake up in the morning and there would be stones, huge stones, in the living room of his small house. And, and at times the television would be screaming at him and accusing him of being homosexual. And at other times, you know, all that it was dark in the middle of the day and all the neighbors came out and said prayers. Uh, and it was difficult for me to separate out the cultural from the psychotic. And so we finally were, we were able together to determine that if he shared what he was seeing with others, then it was cultural. And if it was only him, then we might think of it as psychotic. And he was so relieved to understand that the voices from the radio and the television were different than the stones in the, on the living room floor. So, um, and Jung says, and I just say that because the psychotic experience is a, is a terrible experience. It's a terrible, lonely, dead, deadening experience, and it is not to be romanticized in any way. The, the goal is to help reconnect the psychotic with the social discourse, not valorize their, their separation from the social discourse. Uh, Jung is talking about the time when he was working on his fantasies and the Red Book. He says, I needed a point of support in this world, and I may say that my family and my professional work were that to me. It was most essential for me to have a normal life in the real world as a counterpoint to that strange inner world. My family and my profession remained the base to which I could always return, assuring me that I was an actually existing ordinary person. The unconscious contents could have driven me out of my ways. Okay. So, um, okay, I have to kind of like put a sort of separation now about what I'm going to talk about. It this piece doesn't flow quite so well from what I was just talking about, so bear with me. I want to talk about the concept of resistance. Um, it happens to be a concept that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately, um, mainly because of my political work. Um, and I think that it is very relevant if we're going to understand the processes of, uh, of incorporating a cult phenomena and uh, how to understand certain kinds of sensitivities, which I will get to uh, later on in, in the talk. But I just want to start with elaborating a theory of resistance. And I think there's some pieces of this that are kind of new, that are, that are claiming some new ground. Um, my, I became interested in resistance because of my political work. As a psychologist, um, I was kind of shocked to discover that the American Torture Program was a program uh, created and uh, overseen, and in some cases actually uh, run uh, by psychologists. Um, that's true in the CIA, that's true in the Department of Defense. I would say there are about 20 psychologists out there who uh, were uh, associated with American torture, enhanced interrogation, interrogation abuses. And I work very hard with a community of dedicated activist psychologists to expose this. And uh, 
It took 10 years, we succeeded, but before we succeeded at exposing it, we, I thought we had pretty much exposed it, but I discovered that even PhD psychologists are remarkably adept at resisting knowledge that they don't want to know. Um, Upton Sinclair said it is very difficult to get a man to think about something if his paycheck is dependent on his not thinking about it. That's kind of the Marxist view. Um, the psychoanalytic view, I was interested in exploring how people could be so, uh, so resistant to, to uh, this knowledge. Um, and at the same time, I was curious about why I was resistant to the dominant story I was being handed, that psychologists were actually there to protect the detainees, that they were the safety officers, that they made sure that the torturers didn't go too far. All that bullshit that we now know is not correct. So, but I like, was allergic to the story that they were telling. And yet, I couldn't convince most of the members of governance of the American Psychological Association. Otherwise, no matter what evidence I showed them. So, um, so I began thinking a lot about the development of, um, of resistance. And, um, and so I thought about uh, early development, and this brings us back to primary process and secondary process, but I was thinking about the child growing up in a family. And Freud has this concept that goes all the way back to 1895 uh, called the proton pseudos. Uh, or it's in his project for scientific psychology. It's the concept of the child's first lie. Now, this turns out to be a very important concept. What does it mean when a child discovers that she can lie to the parent? Um, well, it means that there is a separate subjectivity in the child. That there's some, and it also means that there's a kind of a separate uh, ethical principle that the child is sort of working on, or at least some sort of form of shame or something. Why did I lie? And I got away with it. And so they can't read my mind. And so they are not omniscient. And so they are not all powerful. And so we are separate people, and they have an internal world and I have an internal world. It's a, it's a momentous development. And a lie, from my point of view, is a resistance. Okay, there is, you know, parents say you can't do that, you do it, and you don't tell them. You, you have, like, created some resistance to the, the norm that you've been handed. And to me, that is the kernel of resistance, and depending and that leads to a very big cost. Because there's another resistance that is probably more dominant, unfortunately, especially. Well, that's a big question that will be coming up in our elections. Um, I'll try to explain that in a little bit. But, so there's another resistance, which is the resistance to having a conflict with the most important people in your life. The idea that they that one disagrees with the rules, the law that they set down, can be very frightening. And so there's a 
kind of an internal challenge that comes at that moment. Do I suppress my resistant knowledge of separateness in order to maintain the relationship? Or do I hold my own value and my own idea and separate myself from them? And each one of those choices involves a certain kind of resistance. There's resistance to knowledge that, that shows the falseness of the dominant story, and there's the resistance to the dominant story. So when the government says, when the government is exposed for torture, um, people who take a parental relationship with the government um, won't believe it. Or they'll say it was necessary. But whatever it is, it's got to be consistent with maintaining that connection. Um, so, right, so that's, you know, so that, so, but that leads to a kind of neurosis. That leads to a repression of the part of the self that would stand in uh, contradiction to what one is being taught. And then one has to not know what one knows, and one has to spend a lot of energy to defend not knowing what one knows. And that's generally the kind of neurotic process. Um, there is also a more severe version of this. And, I, that's, and Freud separated these out, neurosis and trauma. The more severe version is when the knowledge that one gets is so severe that it challenges the belief in the order of the whole universe. So if I am a soldier and you know fighting for what I thought was a good cause and discover not only that it is not a good cause, but that you know everybody I know has been killed for what is not a good cause, the trauma is not only seeing the death and discovering mortality and fear, it is also not having any kind of a belief system that holds you up. And so there is a terrible traumatic experience there. And now I want to talk about, uh, do I want to talk about that yet? Maybe I should wait a minute. Because <laughs> this, as you can see, the, the structure of this is not uh, worked out well, quite as you're like weaving it. so many different things. Yeah, well, that is true. you have to kind of give background on each one to be able to bring them together. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so, I, but I want to talk about trauma because trauma, the theory of trauma has separated from the theory of neurosis in a very important way. And many people, you know, when you read about all the Freuds, one of the Freuds you read about is the Freud who betrayed the sexually abused girls. And, you know, that's a false Freud too, and I can explain that and have and publish on it, but the, but the issue at hand is that Freud didn't quite get, at that point, when he gave up the, the theory that only sexual trauma leads to neurosis, he didn't get that there was a, a fundamental difference between certain extreme traumas and most other kinds of traumas. And so he changed his theory to a theory of life is full of trauma. And, you know, we have to, that's what neurosis is about, is dealing with the trauma of everyday life. But there are actually very severe traumas and that, that 
that make a difference in kind. Freud finally wrote about this in 1920 in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, where he talked about how when there's a trauma, the only thing that you can do is to try to repair the trauma. You can't deal with conflict. You can't deal symbolically whatsoever. And you know the other trauma theorists, including Breuer, including Genet, uh, they would talk about dissociation. And the people you know, in contemporary trauma theory who deal with the most severe trauma talk about dissociation as a difference in kind from repression having to do with neurotic um, okay, so just give me a second to get my bearings so I know exactly where I want to go from here. Um, right. So the question for Freud is always the same, and the question for those of us who are clinicians and those of us who are shamans, I think is always the same. We have experiences that we have been cut off from. We have modes of knowledge that we can't allow ourselves to know. What, by what mechanisms can we uh, free that knowledge so that it flows once again, so that we take whoever we're dealing with and expand their ability to know themselves their dissociated selves, their repressed selves, and their ability to perceive uh, terrible things in their environment and wonderful things in their environment, but things that might challenge their, you know, the norms of society. What, how do we develop a therapeutic or a shamanic or a, some kind of a process? The goal is pretty much the same. The therapy is pretty much the same. Um, so, um, and one way, yeah, one way, and this is true, I think, often of occult phenomena. I think it is true of uh, drug experiences. I think it's true of, um, of sometimes uh, works of experiences of works of art, and it can be dangerous in paranoia, but we learn about what we don't allow ourselves to know through uh, discovering it in the world outside. In a pathological way, that's paranoia. In a creative way, it's how we deal always. In a, in a non-dissociated way, the mother and the infant, if you look at in, infant studies, you know, you see that the infant learns all about him or herself, based on the response of the observation of the self from the mother. So when the infant smiles, the mother smiles. The infant smiles at the mother is smiling, and, and it keeps going. And so the learning about the self through the environment is an essential mode of self-knowledge. And you know, Freud loves to talk about learning about the self through disappointment in the other, because Freud was basically a pessimist. So yeah, Freud says that when you, you know, that the baby is born in this narcissistic, wonderful experience where every desire is immediately satisfied, and there's no separation between self and other, and the mother is all knowing, and there's no difference in thought, there's no proton synthesis. It's all this sort of wonderful wash of responsiveness. But if the infant gets hungry and the mother is not there, then all of a sudden the infant fantasizes the mother, and if the mother is still not there, 
Freud says that experiences of hunger create an object out of the mind. The infant learns that there's a separate object through disappointment. That's Freud's pessimistic view. I think there are other ways, but that's one. So the, the whole point that I'm making is that on so many levels, we learn about what we don't know about ourselves, what uh, Bolas calls the unthought known, through the experience of fear. Um, so now let me talk about Freud's experiments uh, researchers into prognostic a bad prognostication. Um, read it again because it's pretty much fun to read. Um, okay, a prediction had been made at a strange place and by a strange fortune teller, meaning an unknown to the woman that something would happen to them at a particular time which in fact did not come true. The promise told the woman who was 27, though she looked much younger, and who had taken off her wedding ring, that she would be married and have two children before she was 32. The woman was 43 when now seriously ill, she told me the story in her analysis. She had remained childless. If one knew her private history, of which the palmist in the lounge of the Paris Hotel was certainly ignorant, one could understand the two numbers included in the prophecy. The girl had married after an unusually intense attachment to her father and had then had a passionate longing for children so as to be able to put her husband in the place of her father. After years of disappointment when she was on the brink of a neurosis, she obtained the prophecy which promised her the situation of her mother. For it was a fact that her mother had, had two children by the time she was 32. Thus, it was only by the help of psychoanalysis that it was possible to give a significant interpretation of the peculiarities of this pretended message from outside. But there was then no better explanation of the whole unequivocally determined chain of events than to suppose that a strong wish on the part of the questioner, the, the, the woman, the strongest unconscious wish, in fact, of her whole emotional life and the motive force of her impending neurosis, had made itself manifest to the fortune teller by being directly transferred to him while his attention was being distracted by the performances he was going. <laughs> I have often had the, an impression in the course of experiments in my private circle, that strongly emotionally colored recollections can be successfully transferred without much difficulty. So Freud's idea is that there was this strong emotional wish that had been transferred to telepathically, but that the fortune teller misinterpreted it, and so made an incorrect uh, prognostication but the fact of the occult phenomenon, phenomenon, Freud believed was, was uh, given evidence and was proved. So I, I love this. I, I love the fact that you know he takes what seems like it would it would uh, falsify occult phenomena and he uses it to actually. What year, is, what year is this? This well, he wrote about this three times. This story. The last one was 1930. The experience was earlier. The experience was, he, this version of it, which I think is the earliest one, is 1922. Um, but he, he told the story over and over again. 
Yeah, he begins the in 1914. Yeah, uh, yeah, earlier. But yeah, this is way after this one. So now the interesting thing about this is that in psychoanalytic theory, there is a theory that allows for what we might call thought transference, and I, I wouldn't say thought transference. I would go much further in terms of. Uh, subjective experience, emotional experience, bodily sensation transference. And it's called projective identification. And there are a number of what I would call sort of mystical psychoanalysts um, who talk about projective, and Melanie Klein was the originator of that idea, but I find it a rather <coughs> paranoid construction. There's a resistance to the sensitivity that is required actually to pick this stuff up. And this is the province, they will tell you, of working with borderline patients who want to inject into you their discomfort. And you become uncomfortable because you're picking up the discomfort that is, that is denied and unbearable for the patient. And that's why, because they're putting this into you and your job is to detoxify it, present it back to the patient. And it, it, it's this whole kind of construction that I think leaves out what we would call, you know, an occult, a kind of parapsychological communication, a, a communication of other sorts than the simply by our general sense of perception. So, um, so, there, so Freud was way ahead of his time in terms of counter the use of countertransference, um, and it has been theorized since. I just think that the way it's been theorized is a sort of has got sort of pseudo scientific. Uh, and rather paranoid language. Um, <coughs> but now Freud says something in the, at the end of this article that I thought was really interesting. Um, he said, how am I doing for time, Michael? You're good. Huh? 8.12. Oh. Okay. So 45 minutes. All right. <laughs> okay, so Freud says, on the basis of a no number of experiences, I am inclined to draw the conclusion that thought transference of this kind comes about particularly <coughs> easily at the moment at which an idea emerges from the unconscious, or in theoretical terms, as it passes over from the primary process to the secondary process. Now, to me, that is really quite a fascinating idea that we turn something from a physical experience, which is where the primary process really lives, just at the point where it's becoming what Freud would call pre-conscious, or it's beginning to be symbolized, where it's beginning to become a kind of a, it's, it's capable of becoming imbued with meaning. Just at that moment when one is battling whether to allow it into one's own thought, or keep it out of one's thought, but it is so powerful that it is coming up, it is erupting, if you will, from the primary process. That mo Those moments are when sensitive people can pick it up. And who knows at what distance, but certainly it could be picked up by sensitive people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Freud was onto something really you know, it, it, 
really interesting in terms of his own idea of what is primary process, what is this transition, and what is required in the bringing that thought into thought and into discourse. Because it may not fit into the discourse. It may not be permitted into the discourse, but it's coming up. And so there's this moment of terrific meaning and conflict and you know, soul, agitation of the soul, if you will. And you know, Freud talks about in dreams, the most vivid dreams are not dreams based on truth, but based on meaning. The biggest, most profound meaning is, what you, is why you see colors so vividly in a dream. And I've actually written about trauma, that trauma is remembered so vividly, not traumatic memories, not because they're real. In fact, research shows that they're very rarely real, but because of the meaning that is accorded that moment of, of the challenge to one's belief system and the new piece of knowledge that's coming up and how it fits a kind of physiological sensation and it's all happening at once. And those are the moments, Freud says, when transference is possible. And I would add um, that those are the moments that transference is possible in sensitive people. So what do I mean by sensitive people? Um, I, I want to take a little aside and talk about narcissistic parents. <laughs> <laughs> or traumatized parents. There are a number of types of parents that create an environment where, where resistance is pure. <laughs> um, where it is really dangerous um, to be separate because, first of all, they don't permit separation. Narcissistic parents do not permit separation, a separate entity of their children. Really, really traumatized parents um, generally only allow a recognition of the child as a parentified as a child who's paying exquisite attention to the suffering and needs of the parent. So there, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that there are a whole number of constellations of parenting um, that make for very sensitive children. Um, children who are so attuned. And you know, a lot of these children become clinicians, and some probably become psychics. Um, so I, I just want to talk a little bit about the children of suffering parents, the children of narcissistic parents, the children of violent alcoholic parents. There's, there's, there's like a, a number of categories that we could, um, we could talk about. I, I woke up this morning from a dream and I realized that it probably was influenced by this image. I was talking uh, with Donald Trump. <laughs> and he was wearing a hat. And he took off his hat, and there was no head. Wow. It, it actually looked like that. Yeah. Yellow submarine. Yes. yes. Okay. So, and so I, I began thinking about, about Donald Trump as an example of this kind of parent to this country. Right? The country that is terrible. Because he... He's the perfect example. I mean, you know, he is the 
he's the paradigmatic narcissist. Because you, you read Freud on what is a narcissist. According, the narcissist believes that everything good in the world is part of them. That, that everything good in the world they caused, or they are a part of, or they are connected to, or they can, you know, they know the person, or they influence the person. I mean, we've seen Donald Trump do that. Everything bad in the world, um, he tried to stop. It's outside of him. It has nothing to do with him. Even bad things in him are caused, and this is what makes the narcissist, the underside of narcissism, paranoia. Anything that might be perceived as bad in the sound has to have been caused by somebody externally. The, the bad has to come from outside, and you have to build a wall against it. Mm -hmm. And anything good in the world comes from inside, and you have to take credit for it and welcome it. And if you don't accept that worldview, you are destroyed. The underside of that narcissistic charm is danger. Because if you challenge the narcissist's reality, they will, if they're a really you know, successful narcissist, they will just ignore you. But if they're an insecure narcissist, a volatile, aggressive narcissist, actually, I would say if they're a loving narcissist, they'll ignore you. If they're an aggressive narcissist, they will want to kill you. And children who are raised by aggressive narcissists work so hard to keep the charm keep that charming relationship, and they deny the aggression, and they deny the fear, and they split that up. And they become, again, exquisitely attuned to the nuances of the needs of those parents, and Americans, many of them, who are suffering, love the idea that Donald Trump is going to put us under his, his web of goodness and find the terrible causes of this suffering out there. But you better not turn on him or be you know, another ethnic group that he chooses to make outsiders, or, he's going to, or the people are going to attack him, and he's going to pay their legal So that's a kind of national version. This can happen nationally. It can happen personally. It can happen when the parent is scary. It can, be, it can happen when the parent is needy. Um, so my point is that there are people who are raised to be exquisitely attuned to these other modes of knowledge. I mean, I'm thinking of patients of mine who could not acknowledge their traumatic histories. They, it really had to come in a dream. It had to come through extrasensory perception. It had to come from a, a, a coincidence a synchronicity, it had to come from something where they could have uh, you know, deniability of knowledge. And then my job, or it had to come through me, right, through projective identification or through my perception. And, and yes, the, the whole point is to expand the knowledge of the self and in, in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be psychological. It can be spiritual in all kinds of ways. It can be esoteric in terms of study. It can be. It can have to do with knowledge of history of the great, uh, the great mystical texts. There are many, many ways of understanding one's soul and its place in the world of others. And there are many ways of being sensitive to that. And there are many ways of guiding people <coughs> in that journey. Um, so, our job 
who are my job as a clinician, and those of you who are clinicians, or those of you who do this work, one way or another, our job is to help navigate these, the, 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 that passage of knowledge, knowing the two resistances. The resistance to knowing, and the resistance to buying the story of the other. And using those poles, and using what we know that we don't know, we can expand the experience, um, the curiosity, um, the openness to new knowledge. We, you know, that I think is what I would say is a sort of psychoanalytic um, endeavor to help people through that. And it's not only the psychoanalytic endeavor, but I think that's why Freud was so accepting of occult phenomena. And I want to end by just reading a passage. Um, there's this unknown and wonderful case of Freud's. He treated, um, he, you couldn't say he treated, he had three conversations with a uh, poet named Bruno Goetz when he was a student. Bruno Goetz was having serious, uh, what he thought was neurosis, Freud diagnosed it as hunger. Um, <laughs> seriously, and he gave him money, and he went and ate, and <laughs> um, But meanwhile, they had these three conversations, and Guess was asked about these three conversations maybe, again, 50 years later, and he felt like he wasn't going to be able to do honor to those conversations because it would be distorted in his memory, and lo and behold, he happened upon a box of letters that he had written and in that box were two letters that he had written the night after he had the sessions with Freud, the first two sessions, and he just took notes. And so he published those notes, and they talk about poetry, they talk about spirituality, they talk about the Bhagavad Gita. And so I'm going to just read to you Freud's comments on the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is a great poem. It is deep and terrifyingly steep. Beneath me in purple darkness, as Schiller said in The Diver, who did not come back after daring a second time. If you immerse yourself without the aid of a very sharp intellect into the world of the Bhagavad Gita, where nothing seems to stand still and everything dissolves into something else, then suddenly you are confronted by nothingness. Do you know what it means to face nothingness? Do you know what that means? And yet, this nothingness also is only a European misconception. The Indian nirvana is not nothingness, but the beyond of all opposites. That is not lustful pleasure, as one likes to think in Europe, but a final, superhuman, hardly thinkable, and everything encompassing, ice-cold insight. Or if one does not understand it, it is madness. Ah, these European dreamers. What do they know about Oriental profundity? They rave, but they know nothing. And then they are astonished when they lose their heads and thereby become, sometimes become deranged, in the literal sense, deranged. I am a physician, and I would like to help the many people who live in an inner hell as well as I can. Not in any kind of beyond, but here on Earth, most people live in hell. Schopenhauer saw that quite correct. My insights, my theories and methods have the purpose to make men aware of this hell so that they can free themselves of it. Only when people have learned to breathe freely, perhaps, will they experience again 
what art could really mean. Now they misuse it as a narcotic and rid themselves of their torture for a few hours. Art for them is a kind of schnapps. <laughs> but then you're not an atheist, I exclaimed. Stop, stop, not so fast, he warned me. I can't stand those big words. Nowadays they are filled to the brim with lies and filth. They have to be cleansed first before one may use them again. For that we have you, the poets. But most of you don't want to know anything about that and dance with the others the dance of hell. It is a real dance of hell, and we can live to see where it all leads and what will suddenly open up before our eyes. Often, I can no longer hear the word God, and I don't like to use it. Perhaps it is different with you, but the older I become, the more distrustful I become also. I don't want to pretend to you. You are very young, and the devil knows where you will wind up. That's why I don't want to analyze you. You should find your own way by yourself. As for my part, I shall remain what one may call an old, honest atheist, and I shall try to help people to their own insight. That is my good conscience. You should try in your own way. Now I have talked to you quite unscientifically, and it did me good to play a little with these ideas, and not always to be so stern with myself. Your seriousness is quite different, and your good conscience is of a different kind. Keep your courage. That's all that matters, and never let yourself be analyzed. <laughs> Write good poems when that is given to you, but don't cramp up and don't hide yourself. Man stands naked in front of his God. That is the only prayer which is still allowed us. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard Dr. Steven Reisner with On the Dance of Occult and Unconscious in Freud. To read this paper and other papers from the conference Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult, please visit our publisher's website at trapart.net. which sort of goes from you, from the inside, out. Deficiency present more than a mere analogical relationship, not only with phenomena of normal psychology, but also with the psychology of the supernormal, of genius. Various as are thee, that is, for Sir Stephen, was a game, or the guise of a game. Nothing more, or a check. The way one checks to ascertain beyond the pleasure principle. Thirteen. 
Whether a machine is functioning properly, O had no doubt. Without moving from the arm of his chair, Sir Stephen then told her to take off her skirt. O's moist hands made the hooks, products, regardless of content, our desires for self-reproduction. Slippery. And it took her two tries before she succeeded in unadapted to reality. They appear to be somewhat opposed only because doing the black fail petticoat under her skirt. They are adapted slightly to the present and are also differentiated. When she was completely naked, her high-heeled suede sandals and her black silk stockings rolled down flat above her, slightly. They are more typical in form than, perhaps, images of more elevated love. For nature, or for Christ, Young points out that knees, accentuating the delicate lines of her legs and the whiteness of her thighs. Sir Stephen, who had also gotten to his feet, seized her loins with one hand and pushed her toward the sofa. Metaphysical mirage of the performance the soundtrack. Sexual aim now appears for the production of which all partial impulses cooperate, while the erogenous zones subordinate themselves under the Mother Earth, with good reason. Greek philosophers sought the source in the differentiation of being from primal particles or seeds, this pain results when each seed of our being longs to re-transform in its source so that a new coming ten of cups, screening, fit. He tried to keep the peace among fellow gangs of us, at least. Smell thee psychoanalysis best you can. Execution but being held in max mingle with other an exponent of love fulgur she conceived introduced and specifically not so much in the production or conceptualization of art, but in terms she has exhibited. Have a couple of cocktails, or on, of, transformation of the body. Subject. 
so-called spontaneous somnambulism, resting upon a foundation of hysterically tinged psychopathic deficiency, is not a very common occurrence, and it is worthwhile to devote closer study to these cases, for they occasionally present a mass of interesting observations.